The Trouble with Us Children is Dr. Joel Hunter's series. Dr. Hunter says that there are childish tendencies in almost all of this. He will deal with how they've been passed down from generation to generation. In this second message of his two-part series, Dr. Hunter will discuss laziness and tendencies of laziness, dropping out instead of meeting the standards that God won't move. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 10 from the New American Standard is Dr. Hunter's text, and it reads as follows. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Laziness, as he completes his series, The Trouble with Us Children. If you have your scriptures with you, you can turn with me to the fourth chapter of Genesis. And let me remind you where we are. We're teaching a whole year about relationships and what God is building into relationships. And we take the first part of the year and talked about how we have inherited from Adam and Eve and now from Cain things that destroy relationships. This is the last in that series, summing up how we're in the mess that we are. And next week, we're going to start one of the most exciting series I've ever preached, and that is what a difference Christ makes in relationships and how the big picture is better than we ever imagined. But let's spend one more time together in the crud, in this land of thorns and thistles in which we find ourselves. Let me begin with verse 3 and remind you of where we were last week. So it came about that in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, we talked last week, remember, that the reason that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's offering was not the offering but the heart. It says in Hebrews 11 that by faith, Abel offered his offering. And we can see what just a little challenge from God, how just a little challenge scrapes off the thin surface of Cain's heart. And what we see is anger and resentment and pretty soon vengeance. So it was the state of the heart that was a problem. Now, I want you to see how God comes to Cain. He does not come as immediately condemning. He comes as a coach. He comes as a, as a, as a father, as a dad. And he's, and he's saying to him, we can still get this thing right. Look at what he says. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Now, this is not a rhetorical question. This isn't, this isn't like when you walk in a room and your kid's doing something bad, you say, why did you do that? The kid doesn't know. I mean, he just did it because he's a boogerhead. He's a born a boogerhead and he's going to be a boogerhead. But Cain knew. 
Cain knew what the problem was, and with the help of the Lord, he could discover it. So God goes into a little instant therapy here. Let's look into your heart and let's discover why you're angry right now. We can, we can do this thing. This is not a very complex question, Cain. This is a very simple thing. Now look what he says. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Now, I want you to see what God's doing. He's saying to Cain, now look, we've got, we can do this thing. This is not something beyond your capability. I want you to keep trying. I don't want you to quit here. If you do well, I want you to know you will be accepted. I want you to know your offering will be accepted. You've got it in you. As a matter of fact, we know from the rest of the scripture witness, you have to try to fail God because he'll come after you. Now, it's not that you can't sin and it seem accidental. From time to time, one of those dudes creeps up on you and you just find yourself in a mess. And you, and you can look around and you say, well, I didn't think I intended to do this. But when it comes to failing God, you've got to run from him full steam. Because he will come after you and he will say and he will put in your heart, look, this is what you've got to do. That's the difference between the Holy Spirit and Satan. The Holy Spirit makes it plain to you what you've got to do. Satan just gives this general blah feeling like you're, you're junk. And you don't know what to do about it. You just feel like junk. That's how you know it's from the other side. But when it's from the Holy Spirit, you know perfectly well what you're supposed to do. Because God's specific and he's trying to help you out. So in order to fail God, you've got to run from him. You've got, you've got to intend to fail him. You can't do it by accident. It says that in John. It says people love the darkness rather than the light. That's why they got condemned, not because God condemned, because they condemned themselves. Now, read on with me, because I'm, I'm, I'm going too long on this point, and I may stay here forever. But this is what God says. If you do well, we've got the equipment, we can help you do this. You know, one of the things in our hearts that kills us is the fact that we won't look in our hearts. We've got, we've got perfectly... Capable people who will help us, perfectly capable instruments that will show us what our hearts are, and we won't avail ourselves of them. God was saying right there that day, I'll help you out. I'll help you out. And he wouldn't avail himself of it. I remember a Paul Harvey story one time about a Pan-American exposition in 1901. They used to have these things called like world fairs, you know, and they, and they would not only be carnivals, but they would be uh, the the showcase for the latest technology. And they were having one of these in Buffalo, New York. Thousands of people went. It was quite a sophisticated thing. On the grounds, they even had this little kind of emergency operating room. Well, they would need it that day because that day they wheeled in this older gentleman, overweight, who had been shot twice at close range. One of the bullets had ricocheted off of a rib of his, but the other went straight into his abdomen, through his stomach wall, through the other stomach wall, but made no exit. Now, they went in to operate. And by the way, when they put the anesthesia on this guy, he didn't count back for, backwards from 100, 99, 98 until he went out. He started like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And he went out. Well, the doctors were very fearful because they had to find that bullet. They knew two things could happen if the bullet was left in there. Number one, he could continue to hemorrhage. And number two, there could be infection that would eventually kill him. 
And they searched and searched, and the vital signs kept going down, and finally they had to give up the effort because he was just too weak, and they sewed him back up, never having found the bullet. He died a week later. His name was President William McKinley. The real shame of this whole event, the terrible irony of the whole event, is this. That in that same exposition, just a few tents down, they were displaying a fully functional, for the first time, x-ray machine. You say they could have used that and located the bullet and extracted that bullet, but they just didn't avail themselves of the available resources. Christians, there are things in your life that can kill you. And you can't seem to find them. And God says, i got this x-ray machine right here. You read this, and it'll show you in your life what will take you down and kill you. Now it's up to you. Do you want to do it or don't you? You can do it. I'll help you. But then he gives the warning. If you don't. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Here's the point. We're always looking for a way out of responsibility. See, it's tough to look at what's wrong in ourselves rather than taking down our brother. It's a lot easier taking down our brother. And it's more painful to look what's inside our heart. So we're always looking for a way out. Notice who God says is waiting at the door. Now, there wasn't any door here. They were standing outside. It's the door to your heart. He's saying, you're in a little room right now. You can turn around and you can face your responsibility and we can do this deal together or you can try to escape. But I want to warn you this. If you try to escape, between you and the door is Satan. And he is just waiting for you to try to find a way out of this. He is just waiting for you so that he can pervert your understanding. And if you go that way, you're going to have to master it. He doesn't, he, sa- he says very plainly, your problem is not a person. Your problem is not a, a, uh, able. That's not your problem. The one you gotta fight is either chickening out of improving your own offering or fighting Satan. Those are your two choices. If you want out of this room, those are your two choices. How many of us believe that the problems we have in our lives are because of other people? I mean, don't people irritate you a great deal? And isn't it very tempting to say, He's my problem. She's my problem. I read a story one time about a monk who was so irritated and so disgusted with the world that he I mean, the, was a Catholic man and he went to join a monastery. He says, man, if I can only get among Christians, see? I get out of the temptation and the crud and I'd be with other Christians who are flat out for God and that'll make me close to God. Two years later, he was so irritated about, uh, with all the monks in that monastery He said, well, maybe I'll go out in the desert. You know, if I can just get away from people, I can get close to God. Went out in the desert one day with a just old uh, clay jar full of water and a a a piece of bread. He's going to be one of those desert hermit fathers. And went out there and set that jug down on a rock and it tipped over. He set it back up and tipped over again. He picked that thing up and it broke. And he realized for the first time, the irritation isn't out there, it's in here. There was nobody else around. How many of us realize people aren't the problem? It's in here that's the problem. How many of us are under the illusion that if we can just find a villain and plug him, it'll be all right? You know, 
Ralph Sockman used to say, in the early days, when, when movies first came out, the first movies they made, some of the first movies they made were old cowboy movies. And they had these guys, of course, these villains were really villainous, you know, and they were, you know, had the mustaches and the black hats, and, and they'd go in and rob the banks and shoot people, and they'd tie the women to the railroad tracks, and, and just, you know, and they said, they used to ship these things out west. And real cowboys would come from in from the plains to watch these cowboy movies, if you can imagine this. And he said they used to get so furious watching these things, they'd get up, pull their gun, and start, start shooting the villain on the screen, you know? How many of us have the same illusion that if we can just find a, a, a villain and shoot him, but the villain isn't out there. It's an illusion. All they did was put bullet holes in the furniture. That's not the villain. You gotta, you gotta understand, anger in this life is a normal emotion. There's nothing wrong with anger, but it's how you use it that makes all the difference in the world. Martin Luther used to say, when I get angry, I preach well and I pray even better. You know why? Because he knew how to use it. He didn't take it out there. He didn't scatter it on people. He used it to correct his own life. And I want to tell you that there's a real temptation to go out and find someone else to fight, to find someone else to argue with, to become a warrior instead of a worker, to become a bomber instead of a builder. That's the temptation. Well, let's go back to Cain. Let's see what he did. You know the story. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Now, this isn't too far of a stretch, is it? To know that when we got a problem, we're trying to project it onto somebody else and find a villain out there. I see the same thing in Christian people. I see Christian people all over the land dividing up into groups thinking that the problem is the sacred versus the secular. Thinking the problem, and this will come as a shock to you ditto heads, that the problem is conservative versus liberals. Thinking that the problem is all of those people out there who have it all wrong. I know Christians who get mad when they see condom ads on TV. Now, let me just ask you a question here. I probably just made you mad saying that. Then I know I did. Why do you get mad at that? Why do you get mad? Don't you know that's the best the world has to offer? They're just doing their best. Without Jesus in your life, the best you can hope for is safe sex. Why does that make you mad instead of break your heart? There are people out there thinking their best, the best they can do is safe sex. And without Jesus Christ in your life, that is the best you can do. There's no sense in getting mad at it. Feel sorry for them for crying out loud. That's the best they got to look forward to. Now, if that were on Christian TV, I'd have a real problem with that. Because that's not the best Christians can do. But I say, they're, they're living in a, in a, in a world that, that they're just trying to do their best. Feel compassion for them for crying out loud. I know people who are all bent out of shape about this prayer in school thing. Well, now, I'd like it. I mean, <laughs> schools are dangerous. I mean, they're just flat dangerous. And I, I would like it if it would dawn on some people someday that, well, maybe prayer might help. I would like that. 
But it doesn't matter whether the state ever approves prayer. That doesn't affect my prayer life one bit. It doesn't affect the prayer life of my kids one bit. They'll pray when and where they want and take the consequences for it. We don't look for permission to pray. It's not their job to mold our Christianity. It's our job. It's my responsibility to mold my life. I was watching TV the other night. Beck and I sat down about 10 o'clock and looked for bubblegum stuff, you know, and we'd start to flip and think. And it got, got the uh, L.A. law. You ever seen that part? L.A. law. They, they argue cases in, in court. And, and they were arguing a case about a, a guy that got fired for teaching creation. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting, so I just, stepped, just kept it right there. Well, he had a Christian attorney. But the prosecutor got up and in his closing argument said two things. First of all, he said, the argument isn't whether or not you believe in creation. The argument is, are you going to obey the rule that is written into the Constitution of the United States of separation of church and state? That's not anywhere in the Constitution of the United States. You can read that Constitution 50,000 times. You will not find that phrase. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do they get off putting this kind of false information on TV? Now, I'm getting a little angry at this point. And then he goes on. And he says even more to the point. Our job is to say, as it says in the First Amendment, that you can't teach religion in school. It doesn't say anything like that in the First Amendment. First Amendment guarantees free speech. And I'm sitting there thinking, how can they put this out there? Are there people that are buying this? And I start getting mad at Hollywood. Hollywood's not my problem. If anybody buys that, it's because I haven't done my job. It's because we haven't said, there's nothing in there that says we can't teach what we believe. There's nothing in there. Now, we may have to take consequences because we live in the, in the society, but the state does not regulate. You know, and people who have this false information, well, listen, we can be mad at people all day long. But let me tell you something. If you decide on spending your life being mad at other people, let me tell you what happens. That's a decision of how God's going to use you. Because you've got a basic choice in this life. You can either spend your life arguing issues with people, or you can spend your life building something worthwhile. Those are your two issues. Those are your two decisions. Let me, let me show you something in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. It is very important for us to understand that even if you start fighting for a good cause, there are a lot of belligerent people who believe they're fighting for a good cause. There are a lot of people who use their anger as righteous indignation against the, the, the forces of Satan. But even in the best scenario, and let me tell you, it's not very long until that anger gets turned on other believers. If you're cultivating that anger in you, anger doesn't know any fixed target. Anger is anger. Anger will come out against anybody. It'll live in you. Anger is non-discriminatory. But even at first, if you have the kind of anger that God has used to give trouble to some of the forces that have come against the people of God, you are still not in the right frame of mind or of the right temperament to build his church. Now, 
Look at this. This is one of the saddest little vignettes in all Scripture. David got up one day. David was a warrior. He was a warrior, and God used him. But he realized that 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 mentality he had built, that had served God in some places, limited him from what he would ultimately have liked to have done for God. Because he had had the mentality that injured people. And he got up one day, and he looked out. He's living in this fine castle. He looked out, and the Ark of the Covenant's got this, this little old tattered tent. They call the tabernacle tent to live in. He said, this isn't right. Great castle, and this, this Ark of the Covenant's got this little old tattered tent. Man, I'm going to build God a temple. Pretty soon, he talked to Nathan. Now, Nathan would tell him what's up. Nathan was his friend and a prophet, and he told him what's up. He said, Nathan, what do you think if I build God a temple? Nathan says, oh, do all in your heart. Are you kidding me? Tell a prophet you're going to build a church? Man, oh man, that's great. Do all in your heart and more, he says. See, he didn't catch it. But David couldn't sleep. God came to him and told him what even the prophet missed. God said, your heart isn't right to build a temple. Look at this. This, starting in verse 6, is David's call to his son. And it is the relinquishing of that great treasured responsibility to his son. Why? Read with me. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Let me tell you something. Bombers can't be builders. Warriors can't be workmen. They don't mix. You've got to decide whether or not you want to spend your life fighting people who don't, who don't agree with you. Or you want to actually build something that lasts for God. That's your choice. Now, it's so important along these lines to know the risk you take. God warned Cain. He warned him and he said, if you walk out that door, you're going to have more trouble than you bargained for. And that's exactly what happened. Because even as angry as Cain was, Cain put his emotions out on the table for the rest of his life because he got, he got cowardly with God and eventually he wound up feeling cowardly with everybody else. Look at this. Go back to the Genesis passage with me. Look what happens. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? I mean, God just nails him. Your, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate ground, it shall no longer cultivate, uh, no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me. See, just wimping out. His, 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 he's just putting out, he's saying, Oh, this can't happen. This isn't fair. See? It's not my fault. And then he says, he repeats, 
his judgment to God. He says, Behold, thou hast driven me from this day from thy face, from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. He was afraid of everybody. Now let me tell you this. If you determine you're going to live the life of somebody who argues and fusses and fights and gripes and whines, you're going to end up afraid of everybody. Why? Because you always think there's going to be somebody to take you down. You're always going to think somebody's going to be out there and they're going to beat me. And you're going to be spending the rest of your life either furious with somebody and laying your guts out of the table. They call it venting your spleen. Or you're going to be out there telling everybody, oh, it's my fault, the whole world hates me, it's not my fault, I'm in, not in control, everybody else is in control, this is not fair, and just laying your heart out there and nothing will ever get better for you. Nothing will ever get better for you if you determine that you're going to spend your life arguing instead of building. Let me tell you about a, uh, an animal that lives in the sea. And before I even begin this, let me tell you that I apologize beforehand, but when you're desperate for a sermon illustration and your wife is a biology teacher, this is all you come up with. <laughs> there's, a, there's an animal lives in the sea called a sea cucumber. looks like an old brown pickle. Whenever the predator comes around, whenever his enemy comes around, you know what that sea cucumber does? I'm sorry for the graphicness of this, but... He expels his innards. He just expels his innards so that the predator can feed on those innards. And this, this old empty guy just goes someplace and hides until he can regenerate his innards. I know people like that. I do. They're always laying their heart on an, out on the table. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, this is awful. They're griping and they're whining all day long. Their heart's out on the table. And then they crawl away, hoping that they can regenerate the inside, only to do the, next, the same thing the next day. Let me ask you, what good does that do? What does that change? Absolutely nothing. God calls for more than that. He doesn't call for a journey of a coward who will just vent his feelings and vent his spleen. He calls for people who will build what needs to be built. But you know what? In order to do that, you've got to get to work. You can't sit around and moan and gripe. When the Bible talks about busybodies, you know the one element that it always includes? They are vastly underemployed. Anybody you meet that gripes a whole bunch has way too much time on their hands. They ought to be doing something. And if you find yourself griping a whole bunch, you ought to get busier. Because there is a negative correlation between how much time we take to gripe and how much work we get done. The people who get work done don't take the time to fight. They won't take the time to argue everybody's point, especially discerning that they're not going to win their argument anyhow. Nobody argues and wins very many arguments. You know that? It's a waste of your time. And to sit around and moan about stuff is a waste of your energy. You can't get done what you, what you were put here to do. When I was in high school, my football coach got some of us guys jobs. About four of us got us jobs on a, on a road gang for the summer so we could keep in shape, build muscle, keep in shape. Well, that was a rotten old job. We worked for a dollar an hour, and uh, it was hot and... You, you, you carried around stones and tar on your shoes. And they weighed 50 pounds a piece, and the bugs were lousy that summer. And, and I griped about everything. I griped the whole 
the whole way. And, and, and I, and I could have looked justified in my griping had it not been for one person on that road gang. You see, there were four high school football players, and there was one little guy who couldn't have weighed 100 pounds who was in his 60s. He had worked for the Shelby Street Department for 25 years. He had just finished elementary school, hadn't, hadn't gone to high school. And he'd lived a very simple life. I mean, he didn't get paid much doing this. He lived with his wife in a little apartment. He rode a bicycle, didn't have a car. His name was Archie. One of the hardest workers and one of the smartest people I had ever met in my life. I learned so much from Archie that summer. But, but when I first got on the road gang, you know, we'd go out there. And, oh, Archie would be working all the time. He'd just be slinging that soap, you know. Here he is, 60 years old. Here's four guys going, <laughs> panting, and he's just slinging the rocks, slinging the rocks. Well, I'd get out there and get about halfway through the morning and, or maybe, maybe half an hour into the morning and start ranting and raving about the way they ought to improve this system, see? I tell you what, the truck ought to dump some rocks here so that we can keep working while the truck goes through more rocks instead the truck drives away and there's half hour loss and there's it. And I'm, and I'm just standing there just waxing eloquent, you know? One day, oh, Arch is just, you know, slinging a rock, slinging a rock. Finally looks at me. He said, young man, I don't like it when you whine. <laughs> well, it kind of hurt my feelings. But what he said after that really got to me because he just kept shoveling. He said, but if you got a whine, what really ticks me off is that all the time you're whining, you're leaning on your shovel. There's the picture. If you're whining, you're leaning on your shovel. If you're blaming others, you're leaning on your shovel. If you're going out to see whose fault it is, you're leaning on your shovel. If you're trying to cut your brother down, you're leaning on your shovel. And you're not doing what you were put here to do. Let me give you the perfect ending illustration. This is, in, this is from Nehemiah 6. It's from Nehemiah, who is writing this, Who's a wall builder? He's not some great shakes as a religious leader. He's just a wall builder. It's something he does. It's a job he got called to. He hasn't got magical answers about, about the faith. He's just doing his job. And he's building a wall around Jerusalem to protect the people. And he does such a good job that the enemies begin to get threatened by the security of the people simply because he's stuck to his job. And so they start trying to divert him. And they start trying to Argue with him. Now look at how he writes this. Starting in, this is Nehemiah 6, starting with verse 2. Sambalat and Gresham sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together. Now whenever somebody challenges you away from your work, mothers, if you are raising your kids, you're doing a good work. And it takes a whale of a lot of concentration to raise kids, doesn't it? Because every one of them wants you to pay all your attention to him or to her all the time. Now, if you get called away from that task by talking to somebody else, and everybody knows how to raise your kids better than you do, don't they? I mean, people come out of the wall with advice on how to raise your kids. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether mothers just draw a, a circle on their back, you know, have some invisible target on their back. But people come... Drawing out of the aisles at, at supermarkets to tell you how to raise your kids. You never saw them before in the telling you how to raise your kids. And so you get in these conversations, see? And then you get all mad at the conversation. 
Or you're at home and you turn on Phil Donahue. And Phil Donahue's got several child experts on there all the time. Telling you how to raise kids. Oh, yeah. And you're getting all mad at them. And you're getting drawn away. Now, one of the things you've got to do, whether it's, a, whether it's you, your ministry at work or your ministry at home or your ministry at school or whatever your ministry is, you've got to determine right away when somebody tries to distract you, is this going to be a helpful conversation or not? If I get into this, am I going to get anywhere or am I not? You've got to discern. And if it's not, then you've got to admit it. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He said, but they were planning to harm me. See, he could tell it just by the spirit of the thing. If I go down this road, it's going to be one big argument, and nothing's going to get solved except the work's not going to get done. And let me give you permission right now not to enter into any argument, any quarrel, any irritation that takes you away from your work. Now, let me get, go on here. So I sent messages to them. I just, I just said, listen, and listen to what he says. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Ask yourself this question. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come to you? you got to ask yourself, is this thing important enough that the work ought to stop, that I ought to spend a major portion of my time addressing this thing? Now, there are some times when it will improve your work. And you've got to do that. You've got to sharpen the axe, so to speak. But there's a spirit that goes along with these things. And probably most of the time in your life, somebody who wants to argue with you is not going to add at all to your work uh, uh, um, effectiveness. They're just going to drain your energy. You haven't got enough energy to be a bomber and a builder. You've got to choose. There's not enough energy. You've got to choose. Now look at what he does. So, they, in verse 5, decide they're not going to get anywhere with him, so they're going to send an open letter. This is to the congregation. It's posted. It's read aloud in order to discourage the workers. And the, the, the content of the open letter, it is accusing Nehemiah, who's simply trying to build a wall, and the prophets of ganging together so that they can get all the power for themselves. Can you imagine that? Well, here it is. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Gosmu says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel and therefore you are rebuilding the wall and you are to be their king according to these reports. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you that a king is in Judah. In other words, he's saying, I think you guys are just trying to accumulate power instead of building a wall. What do you think of that? Want to talk now? Look what Nehemiah does. So I scribble, I sent a message, just scribbles it off. Such things as you are saying have not been done. But you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, listen to his prayer. Oh God, strengthen my hands. What he says is, I'm not going to quit working. I'm going to redouble my efforts at my work. I'm not going to become unproductive. I'm going to become more productive. God used this to make me more productive, to focus my attention. Oh, God, strengthen my hands. That ought to be a prayer that all of us pray. Whenever we run into frustration, oh, God, strengthen my hands. Well, it goes on and another guy comes and says, you know, these guys are going to kill you. You ought to hide. You ought to be intimidated. And old Nehemiah looks at him and says, should such a man as I hide? <laughs> no way. 
Not going to happen. Now, turn over and read the closing verse. First part of verse 15 says, So the wall was completed because they did not get diverted from improving their own offering, from doing what they were put here to do. The wall got completed. Now look at verse 16. And it came about when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work has been accomplished with the help of our God. You know how they won? They didn't go to war. They did their work. They built something that would last. Let me tell you something. When you get off this earth and you get to heaven, God is not going to ask you how many arguments you won. He doesn't care. He is not going to ask you how many people you converted to your point of view. He doesn't care. According to 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to have one judgment for our works, and that will be for our works. It will be, what did you build in this world that outlasts you? So let me ask you again. There isn't enough energy in you to be a fighter and a builder. What are you going to do? You can choose whatever you want. But God would call you to build. God would not call you to get into arguments, trying to justify yourself. God would not call you to get into arguments, to cast pearl before swine, when they can't do anything about it. God would call you to continue to build, continue to do the good things, minister in your family, minister in your work, Minister at school. Minister at church. Continue to do the good things. Oh, it's not as flamboyant and emotionally as engaging as fighting is. You can argue all day long and feel all pumped up like you've really done something. And quite frankly, sometimes it's boring doing good things. But those are what lasts. Those are what God calls for. Now stand and pray with me. God, as we go out of here today, we would pray for two things. First of all, we would pray that you would improve our offerings by helping us search our own hearts. And God, if there's anything in there, and we know there is, that would take our attention off you and put it back on ourselves or begin to blame our brothers for something, God, Purify our hearts. Help us to confess those things and be forgiven for those things that would distract us. Those things that would take other people down and would just vent anger and destruction even on our enemies, Lord, because we've been charged to love our enemies, but also on our brothers, Lord. Secondly, God, as you have purified our hearts, call us again to work, to the work you've given us to do. Help us to build the wall every day, not get distracted, not be fearful, but to overcome the evil one that wants to get us to fight and argue and debate. No, help us master it. 
so that we can come back to you and continue to give you the offerings that will glorify you and will shape us into true worshipers. Now take us out there into that mission field and help us love and help us give and help us build so that all of the enemies will know that they might as well be discouraged because what you build lasts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.